this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, get my thoughts and Sue's thoughts on the slapper round the world, Will Smith v. Chris Rock at the Oscars. Plus, actor, comic, Kevin Pollack, who's starring in season four of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And we appreciate if you leave us a comment and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Basin along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, it is Tuesday, March 29, at the crack of 9.30 in the morning. And, uh, and and this is early for us, as I like to point out. I know. I have uh, I have morning voice. Now, you went and partied this weekend, right? Well, yeah, a bit. You know, I had a mini reunion in Palm Desert with um, some of my family. And you took the Winnebago? Took the Winnebago, took the dog, um, and uh, yeah, it was great. It was, you know, great dinners. We spent one day basically by ourselves at the campground, and then the rest of the time we hung out with uh, with family. Nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And you said you drank a lot? Yeah, I drank a lot. Yeah? What are you drinking these days? I have been, like, addicted to this Australian wine from uh, it's from a Marlboro, the Marlboro region. Okay. And it's called, um, it's called, um, <laughs> my oh, favorite wine. Here we go. It's called, here we go. Yeah. It, it's uh, Kate. Oh, God. Middleton. What is it? Kate. It's not Kate Upton. Middleton. Kate Upton. Kate no, it's, Austra- it's Australian. <laughs> um, anyway, it's uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, nice. And I never, nice. ever drank that type of wine before. Yeah. And, uh, Kate McKinnon. <laughs> I, it's, it's so sad. It's so sad that I can't tell you what my favorite wine is. Um, it's like my mom and the Nariva. Oh, God. My mom takes Nariva and she said, she said, I'm taking these brain pills. It's really making a difference. I said, which, what pills are you taking? <laughs> she said, Leo, what pills are we taking? <laughs> I know it's really pathetic. I'm a little anyway. pissed off this morning. Our refrigerator's not working, so it's melting all over the place. There, it seems like they're building houses on all sides of us. So there's hammering and there's sawing and there's drilling and all that kind of stuff. So, what time did you actually get up this morning? Um, uh, nine fifteen. <laughs> oh, okay. No, because sometimes, like even in my neighborhood, like gardeners will be out at like seven something, yeah, and I yeah. think that there's like a law that they can't do anything that loud at that hour, but they do it anyway. Yeah, no, these guys are, these guys are at it right now. They are at it, but I'm not noise sensitive at all. I can sleep through anything. In fact, you know, I do, um, when I go to sleep at night, Sue, I put on, first of all, I put on um, what we call the, the eye mask. I put on the eye mask. So that's one thing. And then on top of that, I put in earbuds and I listen all night long 
to positive affirmations. So let me see if any of these can be heard. Okay, listen to this. I am being present in this moment, not looking forward, not looking back. So this is what I hear all night long. Is that a British guy? It is. I, I'm looking forward. It sounds like... Uh, I'm in the here and now. It's like Richard so, Burton is all, talking to you. All night long, I listen to that. Wow. So I wake up all positive about myself. Oh, you do? Got to live in the moment, man. <laughs> here and now. So did you see the, uh, the, the punch? Did you see Will Smith just slap Chris Rock? I saw it after the fact because I was away. So I had to, um, I saw it on my phone at dinner uh, night of. It was and, so uh, surreal. Yeah. Like at first, you know, I think a lot of people were probably thinking, oh, is this like a planned thing? Is this like a joke? And it's a bit. Oh, God, I, it, it, I don't know. I mean, so where do you come down at? What, what, what was your initial thought? Oh, inexcusable. A horrific, horrific moment for yeah, Will Smith. I agree. And uh, I just feel like he completely gave carte blanche to anybody who is in an audience and a comedian is on stage and they don't like what a comedian says. Yeah. It just gives them the freedom to just jump on stage and beat up a comedian. And it was, you know, what, what, what really bothered me a lot. So many things bothered me about it, but he laughed. He laughed he, initially at the joke. Yeah, He laughed at the joke. And then he looked over at his wife and saw, well, you know, Jade is not happy with this. And, and then, you know, charged the stage and, and then gave no apology at the moment where an apology would have meant so much. You know, all he did was, you know, it was narcissistic. He talked about himself. He talked yep. about how he protects, protects people. everybody. And then yeah, he's all about love. love. Oh, God. And it's like, really? And then he gets, you know, a written PR, uh, you know, apology that yes. he puts out on Twitter or whatever, wherever he put it. And it was just and, and I mean, it was it was a perfect opportunity for him to even say something about alopecia. Right. And how how and how and how difficult it has been for her. I truly believe that Chris Rock knew nothing about. I agree. Her Completely agree. I don't think he had he, any idea. He is not that type of comedian. Right. And given I thought the joke was lame. Yeah, the joke was well below Chris Rock standards. Yes, it was not a Chris Rock joke, but he also has a history with the two of them. Yeah. And from what I've read. Um, she accused him, I think it was in 2016 when he hosted the Oscars, she accused him of not being black enough. Um, so they, they do have a history, but I just thought, and shame on so many other people like Tiffany Haddish came out and said, oh, you know, she championed him defending his woman. And it's like, that's not how you defend no, your woman. It, it wasn't like she was physically uh, attacked. Yeah. You know, and he came in and saved her like a superhero. Um, you know, he said something, you know, and, and, and the thing is, it's 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 like it was a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. Yeah. A and, lame, and, a lame one, but a joke nonetheless. And comedians need to have the I mean, can you imagine Ricky Gervais? 
Oh, God. There. I mean, Ricky Gervais now would need a fence. They'd have yeah. to put a fence up to keep celebrities off the stage. Yeah, uh, yeah. Going after him. Because those, the 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 Chris Rock joke was was gentle compared to what you get from Ricky Gervais. Honestly, they did that bit where Amy Schumer treated Kirsten Dunst like a seat filler. And I'm like, yeah. well, was Jesse Plemons going to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. My wife yeah. is nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. Yeah. How insulting. And well, and how insulting was it when uh, they had the, you know, handsome actors come on stage and then we're getting COVID, you know, check spot checked. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, how sexist and insulting was that? And, you know, and, and just to get back to the Tiffany Haddish thing, it, it just bothered me that it was like solidarity and, you know, I don't Standing know, was it solidarity. Like, yeah. And and I don't know. It, it 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 for me, it was like, what a bad message to send to to anybody, you know, that you champion that. And then everybody applauds him when he gets his award. And then you see him out on the town and like, look, you don't want to take away from the fact, you know, that he's celebrating, but he had no humility. Yeah, I agree. You know, and uh, it and was it told me who he, he probably is as a as a person. Like, Absolutely. I've always thought of him as this guy, the smiling, laughing, great actor, fun, makes big movies, action movies, all that stuff. And I've always thought, Will Smith. Really nice guy. Probably a really nice guy. No, not a nice guy at all. Yeah. Complete narcissist. Yeah. So, Complete narcissist. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's very disappointing. I ended up going, we did our Oscars preview. I ended up going 21 and two. I missed two uh, in the big Oscar pool that I'm in every year. Uh-huh. I lost on best original screenplay. I had Paul Thomas Anderson. It went to Kenneth Branagh and I lost on best animated short, uh, but I went 21 and two. Mm-hmm. Out of 23, and I finished second. Somebody won 22 and one. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, all the big awards I got. Yeah, all the big awards. I thought it was pretty chalky. Like the people you expected to win did did win. Right. Did win. Right. So, but I thought all in all, I thought it was it was a memorable show because of Will Smith. Yeah. One yeah, we'll talk for, about forever. I mean, maybe yeah. the the most shocking live television event that uh, has happened in the last decade, certainly, maybe twenty or it was, thirty it, years. It, it was it was like Jerry Springer. It was. You know? It was. Yeah. It was classless, you know. And a lot of people talk about oh, the Oscars, and you know, they they're just not what they used to be. And and sometimes, you know, you sound like an old fogey, you know. But yeah. Um, you know, give me a streaker. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a you famous know, Br- moment where a streaker ran across stage behind yeah. David Niven back yeah. in the seventies. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just not classy to me anymore. You know, it, it's like the Oscars to me have become kind of like a Jersey standup gig, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, and if I see one more actress's tits, it's like, <laughs> Oh my God. It's like, it's like a pissing contest on who can show more boo. And, and during, and during the, um, the Will Smith, during his acceptance speech, yeah. you saw the Oscar banner yeah. go across. And I thought, what, what's happening? What's, what's going on? Because I, I recorded it. Yeah. And then I found out that, do you know why they put no, that up No, I have there? no idea why they put that banner up. Um, um, one of the uh, Venus Williams 
her breast had popped out. It was no. a mal- wardrobe malfunction. Was it part really? of her breast popped out of her dress? And they put that that um, banner up to protect her from being from, I had from no showing idea. it. It was on the news last night. Oh wow, wow. Yeah, it was a. a we'll talk about that one for years. For, for all the, the wrong, wrong reasons. reasons. Yeah, yeah, for all the wrong reasons, but we'll talk about it. Uh, the odds, by the way, are that uh, Will, I just saw some odds come out. Uh, will Smith will not give up the trophy. He will keep his Best Actor Award. He will be presenting next year, and so will Chris Rock. Oh, okay. I mean, at yeah, the end, what are you going to do to Will Smith? You can't Smith? take I mean, it he, away. He did it. You can't take it away. He's like, you, you change your opinion of him, but at the same time, yeah, he's still Will Smith. He apologized. Whatever. We we move. If Chris Rock accepts his apology, then I guess we can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whatever. I mean, it's just I don't know. I mean, in, in light of everything that's going on in the world, it's just a bunch of crap. Yeah, it is. You it know, is. it's such a bunch of crap. Are so. you watching? Did you watch? Uh, we might have talked about this. Did you watch Inventing Anna? Yes, I did. Okay. So we've got uh, Kevin Pollack coming on. He's a great impressionist. Do you have any impressions? Do I? Yeah. Do you have any good impressions? That I do? Yeah. Yeah. No, correct. Yeah. I'm talking to you. Oh, you're talking to me. <laughs> um, yeah. I've done impressions on the show before. Like, well, but... Okay. So what, what do you got? I'm not doing them. Come on, do them. <sighs> you know, I've done my Humphrey Bogart. I do old ones. I, yeah, I, I, I old started well because I started out as an impressionist and I was young. So did those you really the, start out as an impressionist? I only did impressions in my act for probably the first three or four years. Is that right? Yes. So beyond Bo- you don't have to do them, but beyond Humphrey Bogart, who who'd you do? I did James Cagney. I did John Wayne. Um, wow. I did Nixon. I did uh, George Burns. Um, <laughs> was this like? Was this like the sixties? Well, when I when I started, my first impression was John Kennedy. Oh because wow! Because I so had the go. first family. I had the first family album, and Vaughn Meter was my hero. So I have I no how to do real good impressions. No real good. One. I got Oh well, have you a, have one. I've got a good Henry Higgins impression. <laughs> I was just gonna say. <laughs> I do. Oh, Anna, I do Anna Delphi. Oh, you do? Yeah. You're okay. so basic. Why do you dress like that? You look so poor. That's the, so there's a little. And then I do um, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lamps. Okay. The census taker tried to count me once. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> the toughest oh part of that is the. <laughs> oh, really? I thought the toughest part was the first part. <laughs> they were both tough. <laughs> both tough for me. <laughs> All right, so our guest today does it for real. He is a, an actor, a comic, a podcaster. He's appeared in more than 80 films, including a couple of my personal favorites, Casino and The Usual Suspects, as a comic especially known for his impressions, ranging from Jack Nicholson to Christopher Walken. His podcast is called Alchemy This. It is on the iHeart Podcast Network. His current project is the award-winning The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. Kevin Pollack joins us. Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure, says the script here. So you and Sue go, go a ways back, right? In the world of stand-up comedy, we were infants. It was the 80s. Never you mind. Yes. I think the first time I met you, 
a whole group of us were doing different clubs in San Francisco. That sounds right. And Gary Shandling was there. Yeah. Diane Nichols. I think right. Carrie Oates may have been there. And we hung out the entire week. Yeah. Pretty spectacular. I'm from that grand city, of course. And um, people think I'm from New York. It's probably an attitude problem. But um, I'm from there. So, yeah, I, I since the late 70s, have seen the various... Um, you know, comings and goings. And uh, I started quite young and, and in the big shots like Shanling and Seinfeld and who ha and Riser and what have you would come through and I would open for them. And that eventually led to uh, my journey to smell a. So what made you think you were funny when you started? Um, well, you know, all kids, I think, suffer from, hey, look at me disease. Uh, and then... Thanks to Facebook, everyone suffers from it. Uh, <laughs> if, if you have a page, you're, you're somebody. Uh, but I guess, I don't know why, but I started collecting comedians on television. Their appearances, I would collect their names and, and bits in my mind, the way friends collected baseball cards. And that probably happened when I was 9 or 10. I don't know what struck me. And then um, my mom brought home... A comedy album I, and I saw my parents laughing uncontrollably when I was nine or ten and I wanted to be that person telling those stories making them laugh that hard you know it, it was a pretty quick and easy decision and then I memorized the album and was standing in front of the stereo lip-syncing when my mom caught me um, <laughs> and said you're doing that for the Zuckers at Passover and that was the beginning of the career that is so funny. Yeah, performing on the white painted brick fireplace in front of 20 Jews. It's, it's funny. I, I have some, some similarity with myself. I'm the youngest of five, so I'm sure that has a lot to do with me wanting to be a comic. But my parents bought the first family. And I started out as an impressionist myself. I was right, right. Steve. I mean, I... I was doing impressions when I was like five years old. John Kennedy was my first impression. Wow. And um, I remember listening to the album over and over again. And then I started to develop a little, you know, group of, of you know, of, of actors. I only did guys. I had a deep voice even as a little kid. So I only did guys. And um, I remember company would come over and my parents would say, okay, well, you know, Sue's going to you know, do her act. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and I would play shy, like, you know, no, I'm not, no, I can't. And they were like, oh, well, you can't do that. You can't do John Wayne. And I was like, yeah, I can. And then, of course, you know, I would do it. Sure. But I wanted to know, what was the album? What was the comedy album that you heard for when you were a kid? Well, I hastened to mention it because they didn't put in the liner notes, this comedian will go on to be the most prolific serial rapist in comedy history. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. It was uh, Bill Cosby's first album, and it was the Noah and the Ark routine that I then went on to perform all through junior high, what the kids today call middle school. They get tired saying junior high. Why did they? Uh, and then high school, probably from 10 to 16, that was my act. I would just lip sync bits from, from that album. I don't know why it lasted six years, but it did. And it was, you know... Uh, a, a brilliantly funny routine and 
this precocious 10 year old and thereafter uh, Jewish kid. And, you know, you just had to clear your throat the same time he did. I mean, I didn't think I invented lip syncing, but I, I hadn't seen anyone do it. And so for some reason, I thought it was a novelty. Not, not that I had invented it, but I just thought. You're kind of like the Millie Vanilli of comedy at that point, right? Without the lying so much. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, because you've got such great impressions. I was on YouTube and I'm looking, looking at your impressions. They're so good. How do, you, how do you go about developing an impression? Well, um, usually someone finds the key and then you hear that and then you make it your own. Sometimes on, on my own, I will hear a voice. I guess the weirdest one uh, is how I discovered I could do Liam Neeson, which before the discovery moment, I hadn't thought about doing him at all. I don't know why. He's an action hero in his late 60s. Why not? Uh, but I'd been sent to the store to get some items from the grocery uh, and... Uh, uh, on the way there, you know, as a man, I had not written down the list. So as a, I, on the way there, I'm trying to remember the items. And one of the items pops into my memory. And I say it out loud into the rearview mirror, inexplicably, as Liam Neeson. Again, I'd never <laughs> thought to, to impersonate him prior to this moment. And I've never heard him say this in a film. But I looked into the mirror and I said, bananas. And... Uh, that was it. Uh, I, <laughs> and then I could just picture him at an IHOP. What would you like on your waffle, Mr. Neeson? Bananas. <laughs> Go now. I will find you. Uh, but there, there I hadn't, again, I have no explanation at all as to why that happened. Um, another, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I, a lot of times, well, I started in the late 70s, I said, so Dana Carvey and I would learn of those first few impressions from, from Rich Little or David Fry's Nixon album. Um, Jason Statham came to me because I had I, I put a book out uh, called How I Slept My Way to the Middle. Boy, I, get, I guess I'd get canceled for that book title today. <laughs> um, uh, and just, just for a play on wor words, you know. Yep, yep. Uh, and I was on the book morning talk show book tour and I was find myself following Jason Statham, you know, today show, whatever it was, because he had a new movie out, uh, because he hadn't had a new movie out in six weeks. So, and, and the host knew I did voices and invariably they would say, you know, Jason Statham was just here. Do you do, or I'll bet you do Jason Statham. And after a while you realize, okay, I'm the, I, I'm the idiot now I've got to, learn how to do Jason Statham just to shut these people up, you know? And then I realized I could teach others. He says five words, six words, faster than any human being on the planet. And if you say these six words and gruff your voice a little, you too can do Jason Statham. The six words are, do you know what I mean? Which he says as, Jermaine. <laughs> now, He's reduced six words to two syllables. Jermaine. Fuck you, Nick. Yeah, you be dead in 30 seconds. Jermaine, do you fucking know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, 
so it's just the name Joe and the word mean, and then gruff up your voice, Joe Maine, and that you know you're you're done. So what's the key to the walking impression? Well, now there is a, an example of where you someone else figures it out and you ask them. I uh, six months after the great Christopher McQuarrie won the Oscar for the Usual Suspects screenplay at the age of twenty six. That punk. Uh, he and I were set up over at Warner Brothers to create a television series about crime, criminals, and corruption, the great 3C combo. Uh, and so at, at, we were doing our, our bad Christopher Walkins during the casting process while we were waiting for the next uh, <laughs> a person to come into audition. I think I was doing... Bob Hope and he was doing a bad Christopher Walken and we were like Regis and Kathy Lee. Hey, hey, Chris, who's coming on the show uh, tomorrow? Tomorrow we have um, the great June Carter Cash. <laughs> uh, but it was really a bad impression at the time that we were both doing. So anyways, we were in the golf cart at lunch, going to the commissary for lunch, the way you do in show business, passing, passing you know, an alien and a centaur. <laughs> uh, walking in the background, full wardrobe. And we see Jay Moore, who's the only person who had done it on television at that point. And we corner him almost with the golf cart up against the side of a, a soundstage. Tell us how to do Christopher Walken, we said. What's the key? And he gave it to us. He said, to give him full credit, every when doing Christopher Walken, every single syllable word becomes a two-syllable word. So the word no becomes now. Um, then I sort of ran with it to find the, all the nuances and eventually Jay was calling me out on Twitter as having, having the best. Uh, it, I do have the lamest brag. If you Google Christopher Walken impersonation, those three words, as you're listening to this, take a break, do it now. Uh, this, it's so pedestrian to do Christopher Walken that sometimes over 60,000 search answers will come up. Wow. There are five, there are five pages on YouTube dedicated to Asians doing Christopher Walken. <laughs> and they are hilarious. Uh, I'm number one on that Google search. Now, again, that and $7 will get me a coffee at Starbucks. It's, it's a worthless thing. Uh, but there it is. And, and I think it's just because I love the conversational version of any uh, impersonation. I don't. People were doing Christopher Walken like this and getting attention. And I thought, oh, God, that's just horrible. So eventually I started to do a podcast called Talking Walken, where me and a friend just, it's sort of like my dinner with Andre, and we would talk about the minutiae of life. Um, never calling out my name or his for reference, just two guys chewing the fat. And, um, that's where I found the sort of conversational nuance that made me super happy. And, and, uh, it's the one I do on stage to this day that the, the real minutia, like t he talks about a trip to Trader Joe's and it, I'm, I'm never happier than, <laughs> than that moment. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but years ago, 
Do you remember Comedy World, where all these comedians had two-hour comedy shows? Radio, it was a radio show right before the world of podcasts. Exactly. Yeah. So Bobby Slayton had a show with... Um, How are you, pal? Yeah. Bobby Slayton had a show with Sue Murphy, and yep. Sue couldn't do the show, so I filled in for Sue, and you were the guest. Right, I do. And remember. you and I got there on time, and sure. Bobby was late. Sure. So he called in. Yes. And when he called in, you were doing Bobby, yes. talking to Bobby, yeah. and interviewing me as Bobby. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was hysterical. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple. You mentioned that. I remember it. I had one other truly bizarre example just like that. Uh, when I was a San Francisco comedian, there was a, a guy who worked in sports writing, and he had, for some reason, the call-in hotline number for Larry King's Mutual of Radio Overnight <laughs> radio show. He was on from like midnight to three in the morning. Um, and as comics, you know, we would listen to it at driving home from the gig or whatever. So this guy, Rich Lieberman, I believe his name was, had the phone, the hotline. So I called in as Albert Brooks because Larry King loved Albert Brooks. <laughs> and uh, Larry said, uh, this is not Le Albert Brooks, but whoever it is, that's the greatest Albert Brooks I've ever heard. And and so I became a little friendly with Larry through this ridiculous entrance. And I was eventually a guest on his show. He came out to the Sheraton Hotel, Universal Sheraton Hotel out at Universal Studios. And I was on Larry's Mutual of Radio show telling stories about my love of Albert Brooks, too. And doing the impression. And then Albert Brooks called in mm. to Larry's show and said, Larry, it's Albert. Uh, what's going on? <laughs> and Larry said, uh, this is Kevin Pollock. He, he does you, Albert. He's pretty good. Yes, yes. Uh, and Larry said, what do you think about it, Albert? And Albert said, well, I'll tell you, uh, I called my attorney. He has an 800 number. And I said, listen, there's this guy. He's doing me. And the attorney said, it's legal. And I said, well, then it's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but I got to tell you, Larry, I was listening and I'm in my car. And uh, and Kevin, you're right in your story. I did call your machine. What kind of machine is that? Anyways, I was driving in a car. Cop pulled me over and I'm listening to Kevin do me on the show. Now the cop's listening. He gave me two tickets, Larry. <laughs> yeah, I was telling a story about how uh, the, the machine reference he made within the phone call was I was telling Larry about how, Kevin, how do you learn to do an impression? And back then I would put a new impression on my outgoing message on my phone answering machine. And then I would listen to people's critiques, basically. So one day I put Albert Brooks on the outgoing message when I was first working on it. Hi, this is Albert. Kevin's not here. I don't know how this works. Listen, leave your name. <laughs> don't. I don't care. I'm going to go lie down. And then I started getting all these calls and hangups. Uh, people just listening and hanging up. And um, what, finally, someone leaves a message and it's Rob Reiner. This is years before I'd met him or worked with him on A Few Good Men. Just Rob Reiner <laughs> leaving a message. Hi, this is Rob Reiner. I'm uh, Albert, one of Albert's best friends. I don't know if you uh, know that. But anyways, that's a, that was a very special treat. Thank you. And now I was too nervous to pick up the phone. I had only been in L.A. maybe a year or so. And I, uh, I, I, was, I, I was just frozen. And then I got 10 more hangups. And then an another voice message is left. Hi, this is Carl Reiner. 
And by that time, I'm ready to talk to a Reiner. So I leap at the phone <laughs> and I, uh, I pick it up and he says, yeah, he says, this is amazing. And he, and he says, you know, Rob was best friends with Albert when they were, since our kids. And I saw Albert grow up around the house and your impression of him is that Albert. It's not him on stage or in a movie. It's just Albert around the house. And he said, um, have you heard what's been happening? And I said, well, I've just been getting a lot of calls and hangups. He said, well, yeah, um, George Shapiro uh, heard about it from Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> who listened to it. George called, had me call. I called, didn't leave a message the first time. Then I called Rob, had him call. I guess he left you a message. And then Albert called. And apparently Albert called Rob right back and said, really, Rob, you think that's how I sound? Come on, buddy. It sounds like my uncle Zeke. So I was telling that story to Larry King when Albert called in and Albert referenced it saying, you're right, Kevin, I did call your machine. What kind of machine is that? Anyways, uh, just a little aside, what kind of machine is that was just classic Albert. <laughs> Like, you ever, you ever disarm people with it? I mean, you ever like be in a fight with somebody and use your impressions to get out of trouble? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was always the short, scrappy Hebrew in school. So oh, many, many times uh, would I use it. I mean, the very first impression I actually did was the football coach. And uh, I was standing in the quad entertaining my... Uh, my schoolmates on a lunch break and someone came up from behind me and got me into a headlock. Uh, and it was one of those headlocks where, you know, you know, it's going to be lights out soon. <laughs> and uh, it was the coach and he whispered in my ear, I heard about it and I don't <laughs> think it's funny. <laughs> and I remember thinking as I was passing out, you know, I could probably learn to do Marlon Brando. What are the chances that fat bastard is going to get me in a headlock? <laughs> Maybe I should stay away from the people who can actually hurt me. Um, Kevin, slow down. Where's the fire? <laughs> you know. uh, so, yeah. So then I just started doing famous people. And I absolutely got out of many of situations. Yeah. Not a scrapper, more of a performer. So you're talking about fighting. What You've been in a, your share of award shows. What do you think of the Will Smith-Chris uh, Rock uh, confrontation at the Academy Awards? Wildly unfortunate uh, for so many reasons, not the least of which is it's such a magical night for everyone else. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's such a strange human endeavor. Uh, clearly... In, in retrospect, as you watch the clip over and over again, because who's done that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Will Smith is laughing. And, mm -hmm. and Jada is instantly not laughing. What we don't then see, because the camera cuts back to Chris, is what I'm assuming is Will in that classic comedy moment of... It <laughs> looks over at his wife. She's not laughing and he clears his throat and gets real serious. And then I don't know if she gave him an additional look like, is that it? You're just going to clear your throat? Not into the stage. Yeah, totally. Uh, I don't know that she even needed to nod. She could have because he had such a visceral reaction. My God. 
that some weird instinct kicked in that I have to defend the cave. And it was, and then we're hearing about a, 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 a past between bits that Chris had done when he hosted the Oscars, of course, where he took shots at JW and also will uh, uh, saying it was a crime that will took 20 million for wild, wild West. Um, so I, yeah, I, it was a combo platter for sure. Still, how is there not a voice in anyone's head that says, yeah, th this is a bad idea. What you do is in that moment, you get that instinct, you get that fury. You say to your wife in private, I will have a very serious conversation with Chris after the show. I can promise you that. Um, and then you, you bring her with you and the two of you confront Chris and, and have it out. Um, if, if you're truly that upset, uh, then the walk to the stage and all that time to change your mind, because you could just walk up and, and go for the laugh and, and say, yeah, don't do that again and walk back. And you'd probably get a big laugh. Mm -hmm. So, so to loot, to have a psychotic break, which is, there's no other way to put it, lose your, your right thinking mind and strike someone and then walk back. And he almost adjusts his vest on the walk back. He does the straightening of the vest thing. Like, all right, took care of that business. <laughs> um, still in this weird psychotic moment, sits back down and, 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 and then is howling with laughter at, at P Diddy came on next and said, we'll handle this like family afterwards. Um, so, so yeah, it, 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 it was just, completely surreal and really, really unfortunate for everyone else having such a magical night that this is the story uh, and all anyone wants to talk about. But that's also sort of a comment on how boring the Oscars are in general. Well, isn't it kind of, I mean, on one level, I think, you know, it's, it's sad for Will Smith because here he is, this is the culmination of a 30 year career and it it's captured in this moment of accepting uh, the, the best actor trophy and, you know, he he basically screwed this whole night up for for everybody, not just himself, but from the Oscar show perspective, uh, a show that has been declining in ratings and struggling. It's kind of the best thing that has happened to the Academy Awards ceremony in a long time. Well, in terms of people talking about it the next yeah, day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was the second lowest viewing numbers in the history, the 94 year history of the Academy Awards. It it. I meant the story was funny because it said it rose to second worst ever from last year, which was the word. Um, yeah. Ugh, ugh, the whole thing just. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, just totally. Ugh. And, you know, as comics, um, it's disturbing that, you know, look, as comics, we, we use the comic card a lot. Hey, I'm a comedian, you know, so sure. I get free reign to do whatever I want. No, not really. But in, a, in an instance like this, mm. um, where you're kind of, you're expecting the comedian to do what the comedian does, and you're assuming that he knew about the alopecia, which I don't believe he did. And anybody who knows Chris Rock knows that, that's, first of all, I didn't think it was a Chris Rock joke. It wasn't worthy of Chris Rock. I thought it was kind of a lame joke. But um, I agree, yeah. But I, I don't think he meant it. Um, as a dig towards uh, her condition. And where I thought Will Smith really missed the boat was that when he accepted the award, he never said anything about it. 
Like he didn't say that this is a, this is a, a, a horrible situation that my wife is going through. And he just, you know, had this whole bravado thing and narcissistic and I protect people and it's about love. And it's like, mm, no, it's not. And yeah. then he, you know, did the standard reading of the PR uh, apology, which, sure. you know, fell short. Fell way short. Yeah, it was very, very bizarre and unfortunate. And I guess you're right. It's good for the Academy that anyone is talking about it the next day. So you mentioned, uh, we're talking about the Academy Awards. You mentioned Christopher McQuarrie and The Usual Suspects, which I think is one of the great screenplays of all time. Uh, one of my favorite, one of my five favorite movies, period. I, I'm curious, when you originally read that script, and spoiler alert, uh, the Spacey character is Kaiser Sosa. Did you figure out as you were reading that the verbal Kent character was Kaiser Soze? Um, well, first of all, you're wearing a Rams hat. So what do you really know? Um, <laughs> yeah, I know you're a 49ers fan. So, yeah. So, uh, so no, I know we beat you in the NFC championship game. I know that much. Uh, after weirdly losing to our mediocre team twice during the regular season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Way all to right. Go. Now, 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 now guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we you you beat a team whose quarterback wasn't legally allowed to throw further than fifteen <laughs> yards. Um, by contract, he wasn't allowed to throw further than fifteen yards. Uh, uh, well, listen. When I read the script, there's, you absolutely did not. Not only did you not figure it out, uh, you were more shocked as you're turning the page when you get to the ending because you have no visuals other than the ones you've created in your head. Uh, in terms of putting together anything. Um, and uh, as great as that movie is, and, and I'm objectively able to say that it's pretty damn good, uh, the script was better. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The script, script really was the best script I've ever read um, still to this day, and it's coming up on 27 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and it was one of those things where, uh, you know, after after a, a, a few a few good men came out in '92, which is now celebrating its 30 year anniversary. Hmm. Um, I was 12. Uh, after that movie came out, I I did that that incredibly lucky crossing the goal line of going from auditioning to getting offers, and. Uh, cause I'm the only discovery as an actor in the movie. Everybody else is ridiculously famous. I was the only one that the industry could say, well, now, wait a second. Who's that guy? You know, which it was just crazy. Good fortune that, and that part written as the conscious of the piece, there was a lot of things going for me, but so, uh, my agent at the time in 94, uh, when we would be on the phone and going through the offers or whatever, he would say, and there's a script I want you to read. Uh, called The Usual Suspects. And I said, who wrote it? He said, you've never heard of him. He's 25. I said, okay. Who's directing it? You've never heard of him. He's 25. All right, great. Who else is in it? Um, they're still putting together the cast. Why are you bothering me with this? I would say. He said, because I read it and it's ridiculous and you just have to read it. You have to read it. The director wants you for it and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, well, what else is going on? And not that I was being, you know, a, a prick. It was just the, the, 
in the course of conversation, this is how these conversations went. Because I, I, you know, we all learn, even as comedians, you, the company you keep, right, is going to raise the level of, of your game. And, and um, so eventually he, he wore me down. I read the script. And on page five, I put it down and called him and said, yes, I'm in. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, by page five. It was so, so before that, you mentioned Few Good Men. You're on the set for what is, you know, just an iconic. You, you've actually got three movies that are, you know, that that above and beyond are like movies that I will stop on every single time. Casino, Usual Suspects, uh, and A Few Good Men. You're on the set when Nicholson Jessup gives the the famous speech. Uh, and, of course, you are Weinberg. Uh, what What is this? Is the energy just like, crackling do you know like you're making history that that's a scene that's going to stand the test of time when it's actually going on um well it was a play that ran over 500 performances first so you knew it was a great piece of material rob reiner was batting a thousand at the time um having done you know not only great nothing but great films spinal tap harry met sally Princess Bride, um, I think even Misery before then. Not only these great films, but each one different genre than the other. I mean, he was pulling off uh, what was just an absurd record. So you felt you were certainly in great hands. Bob Richardson was the cinematographer who, you look him up. I mean, it's Scorsese, it's Quentin, it's, he's one of the top three cinematographers of the last hundred years. I mean, there were just so many elements. And then you add this cast and it's just absurd. Uh, Nicholson going face toe to toe with Tom uh, near the peak of, uh, as he was on the ascent um, of success anyways, and, and, and fame. He, how he would then maintain it for another 30 years, nobody knows, but he was on his way up to the top. So yeah, they were ridiculous. The ridiculous elements still you'd be a fool i'd be a fool to say watching it i knew that you can't handle the truth would become uh a part of the vernacular um but watching nicholson you know i i was so uh mesmerized if you want a little behind the scenes that um i would drive home each night doing the soliloquy you need me on that wall. You want me on that wall. Uh, to the point where when Jack finally rapped, he worked a total of 10 days, made $5 million. Mm. Um, if you made half a million dollars a day, do you think you'd even hit the snooze alarm? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm racing into the shower at half a mil a day. Uh, but his, the end of his 10 days was uh, uh, him doing that soliloquy on the stand. And on the last day, uh, he was still doing some off-camera work for the judge. That is, he's on the stand, the camera's over his shoulder, onto the judge, and Jack is saying, uh, acting in the scene, even though he's not on camera, for the judge's performance. Um, for your audience who may not know what off-camera lines are. So, time runs out, and uh, Rob says, you know, that's a wrap. We're done with Jack. Everyone goes crazy. He, he'd been a ridiculous joy to be around because it, it turns out 
he was gregarious and goofy, which I had not anticipated. I thought he would be aloof. I thought to be that cool to five generations, people would talk about him, not to him, you know, but he was the most approachable and gregarious of all of them. Uh, just a goofball. And, and so that's a rap Jack's done. So I went over to Rob and said, listen, if it would be helpful to AJ, the actor playing the judge in the scene, I will sit on the stand and, and do Jack's lines for him. And I won't do it as a goofy, funny impersonation. I'll, I'll hold the pages of dialogue so I don't mess anything up if you want. I mean, I've got it memorized, but, uh, if you just want the cadence and the rhythm of what Jack's been doing, again, if it'll be helpful, I don't want to be disruptive. So Jack, Rob went, wow, that'd be amazing. He went to AJ and AJ said, wow, that'd be amazing. And then I ended up doing it. Um, uh, and then two days later, back then you would get dailies and it would take a couple of days for the director to see the work that had been done in the dailies. And so a couple of days later, Rob came up to me and said, you know, I was watching dailies of Jack's last day and of him doing off camera lines for AJ. And, and I realized I, it was four takes in before I realized it was you now doing it, not Jack. <laughs> and it was the weirdest, greatest compliment you could get. Really, because it was, you know, coming from the off camera. And yeah, so uh, that was one of the weird byproducts of that whole thing. But, but, um, but yeah, Jack, I told the story forever in my act and it's, it's, it's the, the story has been tired for 20 years. Uh, that, that, that my mom came to visit on one of the days that Jack was in the courtroom and ended up hitting on Jack. Um, which is, <laughs> which is while we're shooting the scene. You know, she, they had to put her behind him because that it was a wide angle over Jack's shoulder looking out at the whole courtroom. And there was no place to put her while she watched that the camera wouldn't see her. So they had to end up putting her over Nicholson's other shoulder. And uh, she's in my eye line. <laughs> Let me maybe start and finish there. <laughs> My life's greatest judge was in my eye line during my most important performance. Uh, and Nicholson saw how it freaked me out and, and, um, and came over, came over to the legal table there during a setup lighting change, you know, where Tom to me and I were seated. Hey, Kev. Just wondering if you could do me a favor. Yes. I was hoping you might be able to get your mom off my ass. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Think you might be able to handle that? <laughs> Not that I mind. I was just wondering. Uh, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to take your mom back to my trailer? <laughs> Is that what you want, Kev? Um... Yeah. So I would have nightmares on occasion, you know, I'm on this back in the set and I walk past Kiefer and Kevin Bacon and they're talking and I hear Kiefer say, did you hear Jack nail Pollock's mom? <laughs> uh, so that was the gift that kept on giving as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, in, in all the movies that you've done, I'm sure there have been moments where, you have been given the green light to to ad lib. I don't know, based on being a comedian or just giving an actor that right. Um, 
I'm sure doing something like a few good men, Aaron Sorkin, no green light. Am I correct? Well, yeah, it was Rob Reiner's decision to to treat it like theater in terms of not changing a syllable. So I didn't experience the actual Sorkin um, legend. Uh, uh, but I will say I'm living the same thing now. I'm in, in New York shooting the fifth and final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And the same rules apply to, um, to not improvise. Going back to Christopher McQuarrie on, on The Usual Suspects, the only film I was in where the screenplay won an Academy Award. I asked him to drop the trophy at my house one out of 52 weeks a year uh, <laughs> because at least six lines from the movie, probably one that you'll quote to me if I ask you what were your favorite lines from the movie, I'll bet one of them was something I improvised. I mean, it, it's absurd how much I was able, the freedom I was given to improvise. Wow. And, this, and the script was great. There's a lot of great lines that I had, uh, you know, F your father in the shower have, and then have a snack during the interrogation uh, was Chris's. But other things I said within that, like when he says, I can put you in Queens the night of the robbery. I live in Queens. You put that together yourself, Einstein. What do you got? A team of monkeys working around the <laughs> clock on it. That was all improvised. And uh, yeah, a lot of stuff. So. I, and I'm not sure which I enjoy, to be honest, because as I've been now going into season five on Maisel with these strict rules, I have thrived in the, in the confines of, of them, the way, the way a child needs boundaries. Um, given all, all the freedom to improvise, having that taken away uh, also allows you to focus a little bit better. <laughs> on uh, on what you've been asked to say so. so you are also a great poker player and i once got my clock cleaned by you at a celebrity poker tournament uh, you slow played uh, a full house you flopped a full house and you slow played me uh, uh -huh. and you uh sucked me right off the table um you've also played at the uh world series of poker. what how would you describe your game your poker game huh um I'm a bit of what they would call a nit, which is I'm a, a tight player, more conservative instead of aggressive aggro, as they're called. It seems to be all the rage. Every new celebrity, well, not celebrity, but every new famous poker player, I feel, makes their bones by playing aggro. Now, what do you um, mean by aggro? I don't know that term. Just aggressive. Just, okay. Uh, just uh if we get down to, and sorry about this, Sue, if you don't play the game and anyone who's listening, if we get down to the river and I, I end up having chased a flush or straight and it didn't come in and I'm bed into yet again by the person who actually has a hand, uh, if I raise back over the top an absurd amount um, and that person, if they don't have what's called the nuts, they, they're susceptible to that kind of bluff, that aggro bluff, um, such a large amount. And then there's this next level of Spock chess, which is you do that same move when you have the nuts so that the person thinks you're putting on this aggro bluff. Uh, so <laughs> I, I've seen all these gunslingers come through town uh, and make their name doing that. And, I'm sort of the turtle uh, who's taking it. Do you think time. actors are better at poker? Well, 
I'm the only one of them who's cashed in the World Series main event. Um, so no, on that level. <laughs> but but we are students and and comedians too. We are students of human behavior, and that's a ginormous part of becoming a better poker player. My I just the ability to read you upon. My favorite Kevin Pollack story, and again, I don't know if you remember this, but you and I and a very young Jake Johansson did a gig in Reno. Uh And it was the only time I ever worked on the road with you. And I was the middle act, Jake emceed. You obviously were the headliner. And you sat at the poker table and I and you said, come, you know, come sit and, you know, watch me play. Yeah. And at one point you said, "Um, I have to go to the bathroom, he said, and you, you handed me. You actually moved like half of your chips over to where I was sitting and said, play, play a hand. And I said, oh, my God. He said, and you asked me, do you know how to play? And I said, I know how to play poker, but I'm not like I'm not like gambling your money away. And you, and you said, just play. Yeah. So you go to the bathroom. Right. And during the time you were gone, I yeah. won. And when you came towards the table, you saw me raking in a mountain of chips. Yes. And it was so much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. I think it was probably seven stud back then. It was so long ago, as opposed to Texas Hold'em. I don't even think it. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was raised on a poker table. I mean, I remember being five or six and hearing my dad and his friends play in the other room on a weekly basis and yelling and screaming at each other with laughter and, and, yeah. I I was going to ask you if you grew up with it. And I don't know whether this is growing up Jewish, but my dad, every Friday night, he yeah. played poker and I guess maybe once a month or once every six weeks, it was at our house. Yes. So it was a whole bunch of old Jews yep. sitting in the kitchen, smoking cigars, drinking loud. Um, you know, you were fair game. If you walked in the room, someone would make fun of you. <laughs> um, and the coolest thing is that if it was if it were at your house, you got to keep all the cards. So there were probably like six, seven decks of cards. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, my, that was the same situation my dad. He he played every week, and it was only at our place once every five or six weeks or whatever it was. And um, when I moved into the, the house I'm in now, 11 years ago, I decided to finally host my own game after playing in other people's games and had a table built and told a, a friend, I'm about to change your life. He was gainfully unemployed at the time. And I said, you need to go to poker dealing school because you're going to make at least a thousand a week in, in uh in tips and you know that's 50 grand a year in cash so you're mm-hmm. gonna which is like a ninety thousand dollar a year job so you need to go to poker school young man and uh he hasn't stopped thanking me since it's been 11 years but hosting a weekly game is is one of my absolute favorite things in the world to do yeah. so like what are the blinds at your game it's small ball i mean it's, it's all relative. it's all relative um they're five, 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 you know, or five, five, uh, uh, and the buy-in's 500. That's what I meant by five, five, five. And so to some people, that'll be a ridiculous amount of money. And then other people will be like, why, why are you buying in for so little? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is, I think one of the best shows on TV, just flat out. I, I always look, when I look at the show and I, I just finished season i guess season four right i just finished watching season four i always right. think boy there's a lot of money on that screen the production design 
is just astounding on that show. The attention to detail, the way that show looks is just incredible. Yes, well, it, and it may be why this is our fifth and final season, because it's an absurdly expensive show to do. <laughs> uh, and I mean absurdly. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the people who created the show, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, are sort of the next level. And they have had tremendous success individually and then as a team, first, you know, with Gilmore Girls and with a very nice long run. But now this, uh, you know, it, it was such a s- specific idea and period in which to set it that there wasn't a lot of faith among the cast that as glorious as it looked and the production design, this genius, you know, did Boardwalk Empire and so many other great things and, and the costume designer, you know, they, they both won Emmys, I think, almost every year. And every department head, our cinematographer beat Game of Thrones at the Emmys in their last season. Um, uh, so, you know, there were, there are geniuses at every department, but still it was so specific. I remember Tony Shalhoub saying, I think the Jews in the Upper West Side will probably watch the show. <laughs> and so to be a worldwide uh, sensation breakthrough the conversation of almost 800 scripted shows across all platforms enter what they call the zeitgeist and all yep. that and all <laughs> that jazz is I don't know seems impossible in one in a billion but then you know I'm a fan of watching the show also I, I can separate myself I get it. Uh, it it is absolute dazzling Writing, choreography, acting, music, direction, and cinematography. It, it, it all just pow. Uh, not every episode is golden. That's true of anything. Um, but man, oh man, is it truly extraordinary to, to, and the tempo, the pace. Yes. I think, I think the <laughs> only direction I've ever received from Amy Sherman Paldino in these five years of shooting is simply pace it up. Just pace it up. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I was watching an episode, um, I think it was maybe, I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth episode of the season, and Tony Shalhoub and, and, uh, and, and his wife were watching a show, and then she got up, and it was so brilliant in the script that he said, I wish there was a way we yeah. could pause this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I thought, oh, how smart. And it made me think like when I was a kid, did I ever hear anybody say something like that? Because it just seemed like it would be so un impossible. It never, impossible for you to ever do something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you had that reaction. I I had a almost the opposite reaction, which was clever, but boy, I hope we don't do a lot of this. Mm. That that becomes sticky to me. Right, right. Because there's so many things, you know. Right, right. Well, maybe also because she has they they hadn't done anything like that. That in exactly. that moment. Yeah, in that moment. And yeah. of course, I love, you know, the, the the Lenny Bruce character. I mean, he he really is Luke Kirby. Luke Kirby, who also picked up an Emmy, is beyond a phenom in in this part, but in, in everything he does, but this part, man, oh man, he is a revelation. Yeah. He's unbelievable. And, you know, 
this to me was one of the greatest moments for me watching the show. He gave a speech to Midge at the burlesque um, backstage. Yeah. Because he wanted to watch her show and she didn't want him to. Because she thought that um, she was afraid to perform in front of him there. Yeah. And he talked about um, his high school, Metham High School in Belmore, which is where I'm from. Crazy. And he gives this amazing speech. And at the end, she says, this isn't Belmore. And he said, everything's Belmore. (laughs) And I got like a chill. It was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, My brothers went to that high school. Those are the moments they write that are chilling. Yeah, they get right down to it. And I, I will also give extraordinary credit to Rachel Brosnahan because she's, she's a brilliant dramatic actress. And, and the idea that she could be funny and she's the first to admit that not only is she not funny, she doesn't think funny. She doesn't have a sort of funny vein that runs through her. She, she understands comedy and gets it and laughs. She's a quick laugh on the set, sitting around shooting the shit. But she's not the one chiming in with anything funny. Um, it's just not her thing. Um, and so not only as comedians are we overly critical of, of, of a non-pro being a comedian, what she had to do was portray stream of conscious comedy on stage as, as beautifully written by Amy Sherman. Uh, whose father was a stand-up and who she grew up in the home of a stand-up and understands those rhythms. Um, and, and it really was a different kind of, of stand-up in the telling of the story in 1958, 59, 60. Uh, you know, eventually Lenny got to stream of consciousness. He didn't start out that way and he didn't thrive that way. He had brilliantly crafted bits that he delivered as thoughts, but. But um, anyways, so ha- all the hats off to Rachel Brosnan. Yeah, she's great. I just wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question. Being a comic and being, you know, being an actor, but being a comic, were you a go to for her at, at any point during the, the, the years that you've been working on the show? Did she come uh, to you for anything? Uh, you know, it's sort of devastating, but no. Hmm. Uh, I mean, <laughs> in, in all honesty, I'd said to her and Luke early on, if there's anything ever, uh, I, you know, I'm here from you. Uh, Luke knew a great deal about my stand-up, and she knew a little bit. Um, but her job is that of an actress, and they almost never give her jokes. And um, it's so well written. And I will tell you, it is the most challenging and rewarding dialogue I've ever done in terms of the rhythm and the pace and the, and the timing and the, and the, and the, and the, all of it. I mean, I, I've, I've done a few movies. I don't know the exact number 91, but I will say, uh, <laughs> as Steve points out, three of them are really, really good, but I sort of specialize in, if I'm in an eight page scene, I'll say to Tom Cruise at the top of the scene. So what do you think we should do? And then he talks for eight pages. And then I say, all right, let's go. Well, in Maisel, they wrote this character I'm playing, Moish Maisel, as a, as a blowhard. So I'm talking for eight pages, and I'm just not used to it. Uh, I'm not saying it turned me into a lazy actor, but it certainly has been a light load all these years compared to what's happening now. So she's taxed with that, and I think that's much more prevalent where she would need an acting coach more than a stand-up coach. Hmm. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, glad you survived season four. 
It was close. It was a close call. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Um, I've been getting a lot of texts and and tweets and what have yous about the that moment when when Abe is reading the obit he wrote for Moish. That's Abe. such a nice moment. Oof. Such a nice moment. Mm. Powerful stuff. And yeah. Tony's my favorite character to watch on the show when I watch as a fan. Mm. And doing scenes with him is a is a great, great, great guest. Well, uh, listen, this has been great, man. A huge fan. Thank you. Of more than just those three movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I usually, when I tell that, would say that line, uh, 90, 91 films and six of them are quite good. I, I picked the number six, even though it's been insisted to me there's even more than that. But, you know, look, uh, batting average is not important, thank goodness, of what I do. And, uh, and thank you for your um, uh, appreciation. Cool. Thank you very much, Kevin. We appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Great to see you, Sue. Great to see you, Kevin. It's been a treat. And there's Kevin Pollack. The show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is fantastic. Sue, your dog chiming in. I love we're dog people. We love our dogs. No, I know. But if I didn't cut it off at the pass, he would have continued to bark incessantly. So. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I, you know, just to go back, I think Usual Suspects is like a perfect movie. Oh, it is it. a perfect movie. And it's also the one of those movies that you have to, I watched it probably three times in a row. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like you just have to go back watching. and see exactly. Oh my God. Like, what yeah. did I miss? And what was that clue? And um, yeah, yeah. When I, whenever there's a mystery surprise like that, it always has, it, it's only good if it's fair. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that bulletin board behind Chaz Palminteri, right? Oh no, it was fair. It was there all along to be figured out. Just, just a brilliant man, Kevin. Uh, great, great guy. Great on uh, marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I think is just a a really. He mentioned Zeitgeist. It's definitely a Zeitgeist show. Yeah, and and just it's it's beautiful, and it and for Amy Sherman Palladino, I mean, it's such a love letter to her dad. Also, you know, um, and, you know, talking about just the way everything looked and, and the color and even the food. I mean, the yeah. color of the food is 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 pretty and and matches the set. I mean, yes. yeah, it really is. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful, beautifully shot and dialogue. It's dense. It, it's like Matt. It's like it's like Mad Magazine in a way. You know, it's yeah, it just yeah. it just keeps on giving you something, you know, all these asides and very very funny and 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 poignant well the good thing about today's show nobody slapped anybody that's wow. rare these days well it's the day is still young day is still young exactly hey sir this has been fun thank you very much a lot of fun and we will see everybody next time on the culture pop podcast 